So when we think of the fallacy of hierarchy and we, and we place it into the body, I think it's really interesting that the mind is the part of the body that has decided that the mind is the most important, right? But it's just not true. And more and more science is supporting that statement that it's not true, that the body mind is, is a, a unified whole. And more than that, the body mind is influenced as much as it influences the, our environment. There's no longer this hierarchy that the mind is saying, oh, I'm a good person today because I feel happy today and I'm a bad person today because I feel bad today. The emotions are the waves up at the top. Underneath, in the deep ocean, there's no waves, right? It's just depth and expanse. The mess is where the truth is. Yes, I love that. In this episode, I get to speak to Abigail Rose Clark, who's a somatic facilitator who teaches people to use the inherent wisdom of their bodies as a way to dismantle oppressive systems and build deeply relational futures. Abigail is the author of Returning Home to Our Bodies and created the Embodied Life Method. Today, she shares her story navigating acute injury, disability, and an ableist world, and lessons that those experiences taught her about becoming deeply present and dealing with emotional resistance. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here. So let's dive in. Abigail, welcome to the Depth Work Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to hear more about your story and your work. I know you have this beautiful method that you created, the Embodied Life Method. Take me back. What were some of the pivotal moments on your journey that really brought you to where you are now? That's a great question. Gosh, where to start? So a really pivotal moment was meeting my primary somatic teacher, Patty Townsend. She created a style of yoga called embodied yoga, which sort of blends her decades of experience in Iyengar and Ashtanga yoga with the work of Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, who developed body-mind centering. So those two women, I've been able to study with Bonnie some also, but I've primarily studied with Patty. And so those two women have really changed the trajectory of my life. I was really fortunate that Patty happened to be living, teaching about 30 minutes from where I grew up. So when I came back from some travels at one point, I sort of, you know, through some connections found her and then was just like pulled in and really loved it. And that was about 16 years ago. So that was a really pivotal moment. And then just like weeks after I finished my 200-hour teacher training with her, I was in a really bad car accident. My my very small car was rear-ended by a very large truck. (laughs) And so it herniated L4, L5 in my back and it caused quite a lot of problems all through my body. And Western medicine, the doctors said that I was going to have to have cortisone shots and surgeries. And that was just to kind of regain a, a baseline. But I was 26 at the time and they were telling me that, you know, cortisone, and shots didn't, wouldn't last me past my forties. I'm in my forties now. So I, I was like, okay, I'm just going to wait to go that route 
I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot to do something else before I go that route, which is only going to give me like, you know, 20 years. And then it's going to be the, you know, the tissue will have been so damaged by the perpetual cortisone shots. And so that was a really humbling uh, experience. I was starting to teach yoga, but I would have to kind of prop myself up against a wall because I couldn't really walk. Uh, and it, but it gave me a lot of opportunities to really watch the room rather than, you know, being a little shy and kind of just staying in my own bubble. And it also gave me a real humbling uh, learning curve about what it means to regain mobility and what it means to navigate a very ableist world without full mobility. And it took about three months to be able to walk and about six months to not have any pain. And, and I, and I don't have any pain now. And that was really pretty phenomenal. And I was primarily working with Patty and then some other body workers, some chiropractors some physical therapists, but I didn't need to do the surgery. I didn't need to do the shots. And so that kind of gave me this insight into, into the underbelly of the insurance led Western medicine industry. I'm a fan of Western medicine. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's not, you know, doing amazing things. And I'm also not going to say that it's completely right all the time, right? And it was in that process that I decided to go back to school. I dropped out as a high schooler. I dropped out of school and I decided to go back to school thinking I would become a physical therapist because that felt like this place where you could really play in the middle where you were in the Western medicine world, but also giving people these skills and tools that they could use so that they weren't always having to be dependent on on the, the medical professional. So I went back to school. I did all the science and, you know, the physics, the chemistry, all the pre-med sciences, which is someone who dropped out of school and high school. That was really hard. And math was never my strong suit. So it was really hard, but it also gave me this insight into the beauty of science and the scientific method. And then another turning point was that when I went out to Washington state, thinking that I was going to start at the University of Washington is in the physical therapy program. I went on a solo backpacking trip with just me and my dog. And there was a moment when I had to just really just come to terms with the fact that I didn't want to do the, I didn't want to do the physical therapy program. And it was really intense because I had invested a lot of years at that point, some significant student debt. I was like, you know, I was right there, like ready to kind of dive into this a whole new thing. And I left the the mountains that next day. It was like, like literally did not sleep that night. It was just like staring at the fire, just like, okay, what am I going to do? And I left and emailed Patty and she wrote back right away. She must have like just been just been looking at her computer or something. She wrote back right away and told me that sometimes the only thing we get to know is what we're not going to do. And that has to be enough. And so from there, this whole other thing kind of developed. But that's also why I called it the embodied life method, because there was such I, I found so much respect and really love for the for the methodology of the hard sciences that when it came to, you know, it's considered more like a soft science of these, the study of somatics and the study of, of this particular way of healing. I really loved this idea of a method that you could take yourself through so that if you didn't know what to do, you just at least knew that you could start with one specific thing and go from there. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, so many of the listeners on this podcast also struggle with chronic pain or chronic fatigue or immune issues or things that really deeply impact our capacity to be in our bodies. And I, you know, I've talked a bit about ableism in a mental health context before, but I would love if you could describe some of what you learned about the medical industrial complex, ableism, you know, just the the world that we live in that makes it really challenging to be in our bodies through your own lived experience, because that lived experience is key. I imagine it informs so much of the wisdom in your work. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking that. Um, so that was about 17 years ago, that experience of really losing a significant amount of mobility and being told that I had to do it a certain way, thankfully not ending up having to do it. I do want to say that I feel really fortunate that that was true for me. And I don't want, to, knowing that a lot of your listeners are dealing with chronic pain or injury, I, I certainly wouldn't want to imply that somehow everyone can, right? That somehow choosing these or, or making the choice to use cortisone or use surgery is somehow wrong. Because I think that that also really makes it re- difficult to have nuanced conversations around what it means to be in a, a body, right? Because yeah. there's always something most likely that's happening. But I was really fortunate with what happened with my leg, but because I, it was a car accident, it was really hard to look at, at how much the insurance company was in charge of whether or not I got care and what kind of care I could get and what kind of care they, they consider legitimate. They did not consider the kinds of care that I was choosing to be legitimate. They wanted me to go the more extreme route. And so that really showed me this, this way that the insurance industries strip us of agency. They even strip doctors of agency because really they have to just kind of fit into whatever the insurance agency is is guiding us towards. And again, without wanting to vilify any industry as a whole, I think that it it showed me some some really stark ways that we are not being guided towards healing. We're being guided back towards productivity. The insurance company wanted to know that I was that I was able to work again. They weren't really concerned with if I had a quality of life that felt good, if I was able to do the things that I loved, if I was able to be comfortable in my body over the long term, right? Even just when the doctor told me that the cortisone shots would only have about a 20, 25 year half-life or of being useful. And there I was at 26, that just felt like, well, what are we, what are you giving me? Right. Over the quarantine eras, I tore my rotator cuff. And because it was quarantine, I didn't get it seen right away. It turned into frozen shoulder. I could barely move my arm. And that was another example of how how tenuous the line is between an able body and a, and a disabled body. I remember when I was a kid, I went to a summer camp for years that had that that was specifically set up to have differently abled kids in the summer camp. And they referred to those of us without disabilities as temporarily able-bodied. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that in the nineties, that was actually pretty for, forward thinking of them, but it also kind of set this baseline of understanding in me that it really is temporary. All of us, if we escape, you know, something that happens in our younger years and eventually age catches up, right? So all of us are going to be navigating with what it means to be in bodies that don't fit into the speed and space that's been created around us. And it's really humbling. I, w- I was struck once again when I couldn't move my shoulder, just how much I had for- I had forgotten how the world just isn't really set up 
so easily for when you can't quite move. Putting on clothes was difficult. Doing various personal care tasks was difficult. Even just thinking about things was difficult because part of my brain was just occupied with navigating the constant pain. And then, you know, feeling the vulnerability of knowing that I couldn't do things. It was a constant humbling. So I am imperfect at it, but I do try to make sure that I keep close in mind that my lived experience is very far from everyone's lived experience, especially because my work focuses so much on the body. I really do try to make sure that I am not making assumptions as to what another person can do and that I'm opening up avenues for them to tell me rather than just making assumptions about what they can or cannot do. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of reminding me too how we all have some type of internalized ableism, whether or not we are disabled. You know, I was born with ulnar, it's called ulnar deficiency disorder. My left arm looks very different than everyone else's left arm. It kind of looks like a, a hook and I have three fingers on my left arm. And I was born that way and consider myself lucky that that was not the worst thing that happened in my life. I'm also a complex trauma survivor. There was other things that took the attention away from that. It was not something that impacted my sense of self-worth in a huge way. However, you know, despite that as well, I still have, you know, everything in my life, especially my younger years was all about how can I fit in? How can I do things as well as or better than other Mm. people who do have 10 fingers or, you know, just this sense of like, needing to overcome, exceptionalize yourself, you know, become the exceptional disabled person or, or to just blend in, not make it noticeable, just kind of be quote unquote normal. And all of that is definitely internalized ableism. So it's mm-hmm. so, it's so pervasive. Oh yeah. Big time. I actually just watched, I just finished last night, a Netflix series I'm hoping it's available outside of Mexico. I really loved it. It was called, in English, it's called Nothing to See Here. And it's about a child that's born blind. And then he and his best friend who has cerebral palsy, they move to to Mexico City so that he can pursue a career as a comic. And it's about all the challenges and all the ways that people make assumptions about them. It's really funny. It's really well-written. And a huge part of it was, you know, his kind of wanting to be just like everyone else but not being like everyone else and having to figure out how to navigate that thin line between needing people to recognize that he needed a bit of extra help and care and also not wanting people to make it the most important and most interesting (laughs) thing about him. Right. It's if you can, if it's on Netflix in the country where you or your listeners are, I really do recommend it. It was so smart and funny and engaging. I feel like they made some really insightful points. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I I do love that, at least in some circles, at least in my circles, <laughs> disability <laughs> justice is really becoming, there's more awareness around it now and ways of talking about it that are so different than before. Yeah, I'm curious about, you know, having been through multiple injuries, what is your relationship to, to injury, to pain, to your body in general? Oh. That's a good question. You know, for all that I for all that I study and explore the in the body, there's also challenges and pain. And you know, thankfully, right now 
I'm not dealing with anything really acute, but I, I wouldn't say that I have an easy relationship with my own body. I also had a fairly long eating disorder as a young person. And so there's that mixed in now being a woman in my forties in a culture that prioritizes, you know, youth and more than that perpetual youth. That's also really been interesting. I turned 40 almost exactly a year ago. I'm just about to turn 41. And I was kind of amazed by how much it shook me. <laughs> like I was thinking, oh, I'll be fine. Like, you know, I'm not going to get caught up in that. And then I was like, oh, wait, whoa, that is kind of wild. So, but I will say that being present in my own body has, and finding the ease and comfort that exists there has helped me immeasurably in healing the acute injuries that I've had in dealing with some of the more chronic things, even in just like right now I have a, a weird ear infection that just won't respond to antibiotics. It's just like, and it's, it's making me a little hard of hearing on one side. And it's also just like, instead of being able to hear things, I hear like a weird, like whirring noise. Right. And it's annoying and a little bit frightening and a little bit like you know, discombobulating, but I am finding that every time that it like really acts up and I have to kind of navigate it, it's so helpful to remember that I can breathe into my own body and soften rather than like resist. And so, yeah, I feel like that, that connection that I have to the comfort of gravity, which is really, it's primary in my work. It's the first, it's the first stop of the method, right? It's the first stage of it. Um, has been really essential for me and just in dealing with physical and mental challenges. But I'm, I don't want to sit here and pretend like I have it all figured out because I don't. <laughs> oh my gosh, of course. And as soon as we think that we do, life, the universe throws us another thing that's like, oh, you think you know that? Let's, let's go a little deeper. <laughs> exactly. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your method, feeling gravity as the first stop. What else? Yeah. So I've been calling my work the embodied life method since I started teaching uh, in this way, which was back in 2013. But then it was in the writing of my book, Returning Home to Our Bodies, that uh, I, I realized that there was something else waiting there. And that became what I call the growl, because I love acronyms and I'm a little bit of a nerd. So <laughs> growl is an acronym for ground. There's the gravity first relate, observe, widen, that's grow. And that's what I thought the acronym was going to be. But then I realized that if we consider how this is actually just various ways to remember how love can be the thing that we truly root into, then you add love in and it becomes growl. And it, and I love that too, because it, it, it highlights how this does take a bit of ferocity. This isn't just passive. Healing does take, you know, you have to like kind of dig your claws in and really work for it more often than not, right? So ground being the first one is a remembering that we are from the earth, that we are nature, and that our bodies are shaped by gravity from before we were born. And in remembering that, then I think a few things happen. And and I, I think that because it, it happened for me, and then I've also been privileged to see it ha happen for others. In remembering that we are of earth and that we are part of nature, now it starts to become more possible to see ourselves reflected in nature rather than in the systems that we're supposed to fit into. 
I mean, you can, you can see, cause we have video that I'm surrounded by nature right now. Like there's literally just trees everywhere that I look and birds, you can hear them. But, but even when I'm not, it's a way to remember that if I don't feel like I fit into these linear systems and binary systems, it's because I don't, it's because they're not, they're not actually reflective of my true nature, which is nature. So in in learning that mentally, that's like, I find that it's really helpful because it gives my mind something to do rather than just dwell on what's not working or feel like I need to be doing something else. It's like, there's always something beautiful and interesting to think about when I think about how I am reflected in the natural world. But in terms of how it becomes a supportive practice, gravity is not just pulling us down. Gravity actually pulls down and then pushes up in equal measure. And there's the physics that I had to cry my way through as an undergrad, (laughs) literally. (laughs) Calculus too. It was like, it wasn't easy for me. And so one of the ways that I had to get myself through it was in making it sort of have more of a poetry to it. So in, in basic Newtonian physics, it's called the normal force. It's how every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So right now I'm sitting on a chair and the chair is providing force back up into my body at the same measurement that my body is pushing down into the chair. It's giving this an equal amount of force back up into me. That force, if I take it down through the architecture of the building I'm in, that force comes directly from the earth. That's how architecture works, right? We're architecture is all about making sure that the force that's coming down and then moving back up goes evenly through the structure of the building so that when you're in the building you are also supported by the earth so in in feeling that and thinking through that and really embodying that now i am no longer feeling just weighed down by the world or i'm also i also don't have to feel like i'm just trying to figure this all out by myself because i am deeply and truly supported all the time, everywhere I go by a relationship that is much more stable than most human relationships, right? Like I can't totally count on my human relationships, even my most steady. Something could always be up. They might be having a really bad day. They might be a little testy that day. People pass. It's just like, there's always a certain amount of uncertainty in our human relationships, but the earth, even with all the changes that's happening, that gravity doesn't just decide to change on the, on a dime, right? You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove that you deserve it. You just have to be in it. And that to me has been really quite profound as a practice that I learned first from Patty in a different way. She calls it yielding to the earth. And from the moment that I started practicing it with her, it was a game changer basically. I love that so much. I think there's so much now that really chips away at our relationship to the earth, to our bodies. I mean, I know that you get into this in your book a little bit, but you talk a bit about the the things like the fallacy of hierarchy and of infinite capacity. Can you speak a bit to how these somatic practices can help us de-internalize and dismantle these really harmful ideologies. Yeah. So when we think of perhaps like the fallacy of hierarchy and we, and we place it into the body, I think it's really interesting that the mind is the part of the body that has decided that the mind is the most important, right? But it's just not true. And 
more and more science is supporting that statement that it's not true that the body mind is is a a unified whole and more than that the body mind is influenced as much as it influences the our environment right like it's it's not enough to just say oh just focus on yourself and make sure that you're okay you have to really be held by a network of relationships where you are influences you on in a myriad of ways so right there, we can see that this idea that there's a hierarchy, an internalized hierarchy is false. And I think that that pattern continues. It's always the people at the top that have decided that they're the ones at the top, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and then the rest of us kind of fall in line or we get taught to fall in line. But instead, and then it even goes into say like emotions where especially in like the healing and wellness circles, calm and happy are supposed to be like, you know, you're up here when you're calm and happy, good vibes only. And then if you're sad, depressed, angry, well, you're down here and you're low vibes. And so I'm not even going to engage with you, right? And it's like, no, what if we just take, right now I'm making like a tower with my hands and then you move it and you make like a field, right? Of experience, So that whatever you're experiencing is what you're experiencing. There's no longer this hierarchy that the mind is saying, oh, I'm a good person today because I feel happy today. And I'm a bad person today because I feel bad today. Instead, it's like, okay, this is an experience that I'm having. And there's something else underneath that that is actually more sort of grounded in the whole of the experience rather than these fluctuating emotions. If you think of it like the ocean, it's like the emotions are the waves up at the top underneath in the deep ocean there's no waves right it's just depth and expanse so in thinking about that in letting ourselves kind of flip the script for example then i think that there's there can be this release of all of this mental energy and physical energy that's so constantly put into resisting what we have named as bad and instead be like okay here it is right The mess is where the truth is. Yes. I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah. We talk about that a lot on this podcast, just that there, (laughs) there, like we need to have ways to let it out and to have a gentleness with ourselves around the whole wide spectrum of our emotions. But as you've alluded to, you know, resistance inevitably comes up, not just due to these ideologies, but also through our socialization, but also through, you know, it just, the way that the nervous system responds, we respond to intensity of Mm. any kind, right? Mm -hmm. Intensity in in joy and intensity in anger and sadness through any part of the spectrum. And inevitably, we're going to hit up against times where we experience resistance to a certain experience, a certain emotion. And I was just talking about this with another practitioner as well. I'm so curious how some of the practices that you do and teach can help people deal with resistance that can come up. Well, I think it's in in that um grounding that feeling of comfort from gravity i find that there is now the the resistance that i feel when i feel unsupported gets to drop because i think that a, at least in my experience in my body a reason that i resist a certain experience or a certain emotion is in part because i am worried that i will lose necessary support by having it right 
Mm-hmm. And we can go that that statement can get feathered out into many different statements and, and nuances, but it can be because, you know, of, inter- of the internalized ableism of social structures. It can be because, you know, even if even though jobs aren't supposed to fire you for having certain mental health issues, they have ways of, you know, making it really hard for you to be able to stay there. It can be because we're afraid that we'll be too much for our friends or family if they know how hard it is for us at any given time. It can be because we don't want this to be our normal, even if it has been our normal. There's all sorts of different reasons why there might be good reason to be afraid. I would never want to imply that all you have to do is just change your attitude about something and you'll be fine. Yeah. But what it's I terrifying do terrifying too. It engage. is terrifying. It's in the healing process. Yeah. To yeah. Feel yeah. The pain. Absolutely. That's why I always think too that like I, I've noticed so I've been teaching somatics for way longer than it's been popular. So I've watched it go into like buzzword form. And in fact, I watched mm-hmm. it get kind of appropriated by the yoga crowd once the yoga crowd realized that they were going to get called out for appropriating, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, and I was a yoga teacher, so I'm not like, I got mud on me too. But what's been interesting about that is this, A, the hyper-focus on the nervous system as though that's the only part of the body that matters, right? Everyone talks about mm-hmm. the nervous system, nervous system, this, nervous system, that, nervous system, this. And it's just like, okay, that's cool but you're talking a big talk. Yeah. And then also the a thing that has been increasingly loud on the internet, I think especially as the world has increasingly been difficult, is that somehow somatic practice makes life easy. And I just think that that is so far from the truth yeah. because easy is just a weird word, like all subjective words are, but there's a lot of reasons why checking out and numbing out is an easier choice, right? Maybe not long-term. Like I don't like anyone that's in the healing process knows that long-term there's a good reason to do this heavy lifting, but the idea that it's easy to really turn and face ourselves, I think it sets us up for a a misunderstanding of what's in store. (laughs) So, yeah. Absolutely. We don't have to go into this topic, but you mentioned, because we, in this podcast, talk a lot about both like the mental and physical components of healing. And you mentioned being diagnosed with an eating disorder and that being part of your journey. Is that something you're willing to share more about? Would love to hear how your relationship to your body has changed in all kinds of ways doing this work now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. From about I was hospitalized for it when I was 16, but it started when I was probably like 13. And then it continued until I was probably in my early 20s in a in a diagnosable fashion. Right. And then orthorexia, I don't think was are was on the books already. Orthorexia being the a newer eating disorder that's been classified where you're hyper focused on eating healthy and and being and like clean eating, et cetera. But if it had been on the books, or if I'd gone to a psychiatrist who'd known about it, I I certainly would have been diagnosed with that. In fact, I entered into the study of yoga because it seemed like the right way to continue to force my body to be a certain size and and shape. And I'm, I'm just never going to be a waif of a person, right? So, but I I grew up in the nineties and two thousands where Kate Moss was saying nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And these like really unrealistic body standards were, were just constantly pushed on us. But it was, you know, the first real change towards 
really, truly healing the eating disorder and my relationship with my body and with food came from starting to do organic farming. I grew up on a farm, on a small farm, but then when I was 18 and I dropped out of high school, I ended up interning at a horsepowered organic farm. And there was just something so deeply grounding about also just about it being horses rather than tractors. And then about working all day to grow this food and then eating it, it changed my relationship to food really drastically. And so, you know, it's one of those things where I can, I can truly say that I don't have an eating disorder anymore. Like I don't feel like I have disordered eating patterns. I am a woman in the world. And so I certainly have feelings around my body and I try to track it with as much kindness as I can muster but I don't feel like I have a disordered way of eating that is involved in that relationship. But, you know, there's always room for more kindness and for more gentleness, but it was, yeah, it was really finding that work of organic farming. And then, and again, I bring it back to Patty because she really has been so central in my life, but I just, she was my teacher when I was I was quite thick in the orthorexia, kind of hiding it through yoga, lots of cleanses, lots of fasting, you know, lots of foods that you're not supposed to eat. I remember my acupuncturist one time being like, you know, you're pretty clean. Like, I don't think you need to do another cleanse. Right. But I remember Patty just really driving it home that there's that this idea that there's like this pure way to eat and this purity is so hierarchical and so removed from the truth of the body. And so little by little, it started to become just easier to be present with myself rather than feeling like I had to constantly punish myself. And and it's it's a journey for sure. And I also recognize that I, even when I'm at my heaviest, I'm still within like the normal size range. And that makes my journey a little bit easier, right? Because it's just, I'm not going to have society coming at me quite as much in the same kind of way. But the poison is thick, right? And I feel like, and we're all just constantly fed it. So it's a journey. Yeah, for sure. And now, you know, it strikes me what you said about letting ourselves be messy. And uh, on some level, you didn't use this term, but like, you know, doing the shadow work, doing the the hard work of healing, it kind of strikes me that in communities where we feel like, oh, I have to constantly cleanse, I need to be pure. I think one antidote, although of course it's way more complex than this, is being willing to be messy and perfect. Like, you know, just letting it all be there, being comfortable with quote unquote, unpure, you know, parts Mm -hmm. of ourselves. Yeah. There's a poem by Andrea Gibson, who's an amazing poet, who's also right now navigating uh, what is, I think, still considered to be a terminal cancer diagnosis. Here's hoping they beat the odds, right? Because they're, you know, here's hoping everyone beats the odds of that but they're an amazing poet. I do highly recommend people checking them out, Andrea Gibson. And they wrote a piece years ago that I don't remember completely, but it was something along the lines of like, there's just nothing you can say about me that is all the way true and nothing you can say about me that's all the way a lie. Like everything 
like I am ugly and beautiful. I am a good person and also a bad person. I have like all of these multiple facets in me. And that's been really helpful for me as I've peeled back layers of yeah of shadow and of internalized ableism and fat phobia and just, you know, layers of generational trauma and all of the different, all the various different kinds of unpacking one needs to do when they really want to get in there. It's been really helpful to remember that nothing anyone says about me is ever all the way true or all the way a lie. I love that so much. So you have this book coming out, Returning Home to Our Bodies. It's coming mm-hmm. out January 9th. 9th. Yep. And I'm so excited to read it. I am yeah. so thrilled. Tell us about the book, the writing process. What made you decide to write this book? Who it's for? These are all great questions. So Tim McKee, my developmental editor at North Atlantic Books, who is the publisher of the book, he actually reached out to me years ago after a piece that I wrote on the, I called it the demonization of embodiment. And it was essentially on how whiteness is really creating a lot of assumptions and pulling a lot of the minerals of embodied practice out through commercialization, et cetera. He reached out asking if I'd be interested in sending in a proposal. And the thing is, is that I have wanted to write a book since I was a little girl. Like I literally have memories of like practicing my author pose (laughs) in the mirrors. (laughs) Like I really have wanted to do it. So I did the very natural thing when someone says, do you want to live your dream? And I was like, yeah, thank you. And then I completely ignored the email for like a year. And then he reached back out. I know. Right. I mean, it's like, it's yeah, it's silly, but it's so true. He reached out again and I was like, okay, you literally don't get to say no to the universe twice when they come, when it comes to you and says, do you want to do this? But it still took me three years, I think at least two to like clarify on what it was that I really wanted to write the book about, like be brave enough to actually put together the proposal. Cause there's just something so tender about like, when you don't know if, it, if when there's a possibility that, that, that they could say no, but in the meantime, you can be like, oh yeah, they, like somebody asked me to write a book. Isn't that cool? And then it's like, comes time to actually do it. And it's like, can I actually do it? And I remember I was sitting with one of my dear friends and she was looking over the table of contents and the proposal. And she was just like, oh, you're ready. You're just scared. Just send it. And so <laughs> I did it. And then that friend Mira Weil, she's actually a sex educator and a doula. And it was so great to have a doula be like on my team of helping me get the book ready because it, that creative process followed such a pattern of what happens in a birth process. Like I've only done, I've only been present for one birth as a doula. Mira's done many. And there was a time when I was, we were on a walk and I was like, I can't do it. I'm just gonna, I'll be like, thank you so much here's the advance. I can't do it. I'm so sorry. And she was like, you do realize this was like, the book was like almost done. She's like, you do realize that this is what people say, right? Like as they're get, like, they're just like, pack it up, everybody that this baby's not going anywhere. We're just going to call it off. Right. Or like then there was another time when I was just like, I think I just need to move. I don't want to be here anymore. I think I just need to move. Everything needs to change. It's like, you realize that this is also something that people do. They're just like, let me just blow up my life right now. So I can just So it was very much this like very humbling process. I actually shared quite a lot of it on my Instagram. It's all in my highlights. If people look there, it's under a writing highlight. 
because everyone always talks about how writing a book is like the hardest thing they've ever done. And then I was doing it and I was like, no, no, they can't possibly mean that it's this hard. Like this must be harder than it ever has been for anyone, which is proof that I can't do it. Right. And to go back to Tim, who has been in the publishing field for, I I think multiple decades. And before that he was a, a journalism professor. So he's got a long history of kind of helping people bring stories out. I swear that guy has like a sixth sense. He would send me emails and just be like, so how are the existential crises going? Like, how is it going? (laughs) I was like, what do you mean? Can you see me? But he would just remind me that that's part of the process, that it's just, you know, that this is actually part of the process of making a book that actually holds real, real meaning, right? So that was phenomenal, honestly. Like the person that I was when I wrote the book was not the same person that I was when I, before I started. And it isn't even the the same person that I am now that I've, you know, been talking more about the book, gone through all the editing processes. It's just been this real sort of diving in process. But the subtitle is reimagining the relationship between our bodies and the world. And it really is that it's, it's this hope that I can offer my positive obsession to borrow a phrase from Octavia Butler. It's, like the body and the natural world has been a positive obsession for me. Like in addition to wanting to be an author, I also got really lucky that my parents gave me this like old chemistry set that had way too many chemicals for kids to be playing with. And while chemistry class itself was horrible for me because I have, I've never been diagnosed with dyscalculia, but I'm pretty sure I have it. I definitely have math phobia. That was hard, but mixing and playing and seeing reactions was so great. And then they gave me a microscope so I could go down to the pond and like check out all the little creatures. So that sort of thing has been pulling me in since I was a kid. And that awe that I feel when I, you know, look at a, you know, a spider weaving the web or birds flying through or plants growing, it has pulled me out of some really dark times through like mental and physical health wise. But the the book is also dedicated to my goddaughter, Kaoba. She is now seven and she's very proud to tell you that she's seven. She used to be six and now she's seven. That's like a, a really common refrain. But I dedicate it to her because she is so in awe of the natural world and so excited about it and has been since she was, you know, since she could start to talk before she could even form words, she would like pull me by the hand and just point up to the stars and just talk about them. And then there was a time when she was, when she was like two and a half, three, where she would exclaim like, look, look, a tree, and like, she lives surrounded by trees. So it was just constant. It was like, look, a tree, look, a tree, look, a tree. And even now, you know, at seven, she's just like, I brought her when I came down to visit this last time I brought some new clothes, some gifts. And she was like, I was starting to show them to her and she heard a parrot and just instantly ran to the, ran to the window. And I was just like, this is really awesome that I've brought these these like new pretty things that you haven't seen. And you're more interested in a parrot that you literally see all the time because she lives surrounded by them. I was like, this is really great. And so seeing how she is so engaged and like really grounded by her awe and wonder of the world is an inspiration to me. And so I'm hoping that in offering these stories of the body and offering these ways that the body is really 
quite miraculous, even when it hurts, even when it's, you know, not an easy place to let to be. Um, I'm hoping that I can offer these, these stories of awe so that, because that it's such a grounding force, it feels better than despair. And so, yeah, that's a bit of the story of how the book came to be. Beautiful. I love that so much. I can't mm-hmm. wait to read it. And yeah. So how can people get your book, find out more about you? Yeah. They can do both on my website, which is my name, Abigail Rose Clark. And then Clark has an E on the end. The book is distributed by Penguin Random House. So it's it's quite literally available everywhere books are sold. They do an amazing job of making sure that the book is available. It's available as an audio, as an ebook, and as a paperback. And it comes out everywhere on January 9th. And it, on my website, you'll see the different ways that people have, can work with me. You'll see different... I've, I created a tarot deck called the Somatic Tarot and an Oracle deck called the Body Oracle. I like to create. So there's lots of different ways to, to see that. And then also Instagram is a great way to kind of stay in touch with me. And again, it's my name, Abigail, but there's a, a period between each of my names. So Abigail period, Rose period, Clark. And that's another way, especially if you like memes. That's a way to be in touch with me. I'm, I rarely make them, but I love curating them. And it's just, it feels like this way that the social media can be a, a more generative place. It's just by gathering really beautiful memes. Yes, you are fantastic at that. I'm so glad that I'm following you for those reasons. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing thank your story, you. your wisdom, and about your book. Um, yeah, thank yeah. you so much. That's been great. Thank you. If you found this podcast useful and want more in-depth research, practices, and tools, I have a subscription to access all bonus content here on Spotify for a few dollars per month. I produce this podcast all by myself, and that is the best way to show your support and help me keep it running and available to everyone. It would also mean so, so much to me if you left a rating or a review to get this in front of more people. I also have a parting gift for you, a 15-minute guided holotropic breathwork practice for trauma healing. It's gentle, short, and super effective, by far my favorite practice that I still do on my own every single week. The link is in the description below. Thank you so, so much for being here, and I'll see you next time.